Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. On March 15, 2017, Highlands welcomed Lee Strobel for a special event. Lee is the best-selling author of The Case for Christ, a book about his journey as an atheist journalist investigating the truth behind the claims of Christianity. Here's Lee. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, wow. Look at this side. This is terrific. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks. Please have a seat. Thank you for coming. Oh, it is so great to be in Scottsdale, one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, Leslie and I have been coming out to Phoenix area about every year since uh, 1972. Uh, So we love it out here. We feel like this is a second home. So uh, it's great to see you. Um, I'll introduce Leslie real quick. There's my wife, Leslie. Uh, Stand up, hon. Say hi. So she's... So we're... We're thrilled to be here. I think it is so cool that we can all be together and we're not talking about politics. Isn't that great? I love that part. I love that part. I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, uh, Lee, do you understand politics? And I said, not really. He said, well, you know, you can understand politics if you study the word. He says, often uh, you, you break down a word into its con- uh, constituent parts and it helps you understand what we're talking about. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, take the word politics. The first word, a part of politics is a prefix, poly, which means many. Just like uh, polygamy means many wives. So the first part of politics, poly, means many. The last part are ticks or blood-sucking animals. <laughs> so you put those together. <laughs> So I'm glad we don't have to talk about that tonight, but um, um, it's great to be here, but I got to be honest with you, it's great to be anywhere after what happened to me in Little Rock, Arkansas. I, I went to Little Rock to speak at a charity event, and this pastor picked me up from the airport, and he's driving me to the event, and, and along the way, we're, ta- we're chatting, and he says, yeah, I, I told a young woman in our church, I said, Lee Strobel's going to speak tonight, and she said, oh, the guy who wrote The Case for Christ? Is he still living? (laughs) I'm glad to be anywhere uh, after that. But Leslie and I just moved to Houston, Texas. Any Texans? Former Texans? Yeah. Hey, over here. I wonder why. Um, Yeah, we moved down there. Uh, We're near our two oldest grandchildren down there. So it's been been great. And we moved into a house and we we got our phone number assigned to us by the the, uh, telephone company. And you may think, yeah, okay, big deal. It was a big deal to us because no kidding, when, when we lived in Chicago, we were given a phone number for our home phone that was one digit away from the cab company. Seriously. So two in the morning on Saturday nights, these drunk guys in bars would call for a cab, but they'd misdial. Our phone would ring. It was bad enough getting waken up in the middle of the night, but then you had to get up, get dressed, get in the car... It was such a hassle. It was such a hassle. So I think we got a good number this time. We're, we're hoping anyway. And, and, and our kids, are, our grandkids are really getting acclimated to Texas. You know, Texas has got that, that cowboy swagger, a little bit like Arizona, right? And uh, so my 11-year-old, Abigail, uh, she's really into it. She's got the cowboy hat. She's got the cowboy boots. She's taking horseback riding lessons. And uh, so we know she's a true Texan now because uh, the other night we were going to have dinner And she said, could I pray for dinner? We said, sure. So this is what she prayed. God is good. God is great. Thank you for the Lone Star State. 
<laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I think she's really, I think we got her into the Texas uh, mold now. Uh, so I love the opportunity to, to travel around the country and, and talk to people about, about Jesus, about stuff I think is really important. But, but I got to admit, there are times when I do this and it does not go well. <laughs> I, seriously, I had the most embarrassing thing happen. I was down south speaking at a conference with my buddy Mark, and uh, so we finished up. The next day, we're going to go home. We had to get something to eat, and we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants. They have these in Arizona? Yeah. Okay, so I'd never been to one, and he said, well, let's try it out. I said, okay, we'll do it. So we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch. Do all of them have these rocking chairs? Okay. So there are people sitting in them, people watching, and so in order for us to get to the front door, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a young woman, about 18 years old, dark hair, dark eyes, quite attractive. Young man, about the same age, sitting next to her. So we got to walk in front of them to get to the front door. Not a big deal, right? So, so we're walking along, and just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? And I thought, I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel, I looked her in the eye, I said, young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. I said, a deist believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and is just letting it tick down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and disinterested in us. But I said, that's not what the evidence shows. They began to give her the evidence for God's involvement in the cosmos, God's involvement with humankind. Started to give all these facts, all this data, all these statistics. I talked about the evidence of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I'm laying all this stuff on her, and she's looking at me. Her eyes are getting bigger and bigger, and I'm on a roll now. You can't stop me. Talk about Jesus, I read human history, the incarnation, his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I turned to my friend, and I said, can you believe this? I happened to walk in front of her. She said, what's a deist? My friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias. <laughs> she was freaking out, I will tell you that. She was freaking out. I wish that were a joke, but that's what happened. That was... But you know what the good news was? The ice was already broken. So how do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point? And it turned out she was there with her boyfriend for the state track meet. And they brought us back to the hotel where the coach was and all the athletes. And we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it turned out all right. But man, that was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to embarrass myself tonight. Um, I, I, I thought, you know, especially in light of the film coming out, now that you've seen a couple of clips and you're not sure how my story maybe fits together... Um, I thought, well, maybe I'll just tell you that story, and, and, and then you'll understand how all this kind of fits together as a, as a puzzle. Um, so I want to tell you a true story. It's my story, and it's a story that begins in atheism, because I decided at a rather young age that God does not and cannot exist. I mean, I, I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. So they made up this idea of this grandfather in the sky to make themselves feel better about dying. That's what I thought. I mean, I just, I, I just thought the, just the concept of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe was just absurd. wasn't even worth my time to check out. 
Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My, my background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine you put those two things together, what kind of a jerk that, or skeptic that, <laughs> that you get. I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and we prided ourselves on our skepticism. We didn't want to accept anybody's word at face value. We tried to always get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we print it in the newspaper. So, no kidding, we had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> How do you know? Maybe she's li- lying. Got any proof? Got anything to back that up? That's, that's the kind of skepticism we, we encourage. And frankly, it's a good thing. You want journalists to be skeptical, don't you? Sometimes, don't you wish they were more skeptical? Well, my problem was that my skepticism bubbled over into cynicism and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I I really lacked a moral framework for my life. And I don't want to say all atheists are like this. I'm just telling you the way I kind of looked at the world, okay? I'm a rational person. I'm a logical person. And so I looked at the world and I said, wait a minute, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability then the most logical way I figured to live my life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. So I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really self-destructive kind of a life. That was my life. What people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting. What they didn't see was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. Had a lot of rage inside of me, a lot of anger. And if you asked me back then, you know, what's the deal? Why the, why the anger? I, I couldn't have told you, but looking back, I can see what it was. I was always after the perfect high, you know? I, I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure, But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of rage. I remember once, Leslie and I got in an argument, and our little daughter was there, and and, and I had so much rage, I just blew up, and I reared back, and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And Leslie's crying, our, our, our daughter's crying. It's like, I mean, that was our life. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me, which was when my little daughter, Allison, was just a toddler. If she was alone in the living room, playing with some blocks, some toys or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? She's going to be yelling and and screaming and, you know, kicking holes in the wall. At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. Leslie was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God. And and so um, we moved into a condominium outside Chicago. And it was through a neighbor who was a nurse. In the movie, her name is Alfie. And in real life, her name was Linda. And it was through her friendship with Leslie that she talked about Jesus. And Leslie wasn't hostile toward this stuff. Nobody had ever told her this stuff before. So Leslie asked questions. She went to church with her. She checks it out for several months. 
And then you just saw that scene where one day Leslie came to me and said, I've made a big decision. I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And what you didn't see in that film, in that scene, was the words going through my mind at the time. Because the first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was going to walk out. Because I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't part of our deal. You know, I married the one Leslie. I didn't know what she was going to turn into. Um, you know, I was, I, all of a sudden there's a new man in our, in our marriage. Who's this Jesus person? You know? It's like she's cheating on me with this Jesus guy. She's, she's getting emotional support from him. I thought that was my role. Uh, and, and, you know, I saw her getting, getting sucked into this evangelical subculture where I wasn't welcome as an atheist. And, and, and looking down the horizon of our marriage, I could just see it paid by conflict. You know, our worldviews were clashing. We'd have conflict over how to raise our kids, how to spend our money, how to spend our weekends. And I just, I was going to walk out, but I didn't. And a couple of things happened. One was there were positive changes in her character and values that I did find winsome and attractive that kind of pulled me toward all of this. But at the same time, my uh, concern and my hostility toward her changing, you know, convinced me, you know what, if I could just disprove this, if I could, you know, show that this cult that she's involved in is based on legend and make-believe and mythology and wishful thinking, if I could get her out of this, then we could go back to our old marriage. So I decided to take my journalism training and legal training and investigate. Is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion? And I launched on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence. Now, as I began that investigation, one thing became very clear very quickly, and that's this. If you want to get to the bottom line, is Christianity true, and therefore every other contrary faith system in the world false? If you want to get to the bottom line, right, then it, it centers on the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself, explicitly and implicitly. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the Father are one. And the word one there in the Greek is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're a mere man, and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. But so what? I could claim to be the Son of God. Anybody could claim to be the Son of God. But if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, died, and then three days later returned from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? It's why the resurrection is, is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, this is the ball game. So I decided to focus in on this particular issue. Did Jesus return from the dead or did he not? Is it legend? Is it mythology? Is it make-believe? Is it wishful thinking? Or is it based on historical reality? You know what, friends? Christianity is... You know, I think pretty much the only world religion 
that invites investigation. And so I decided to do that, to investigate it. Now, as I began that investigation, I did not give the New Testament any special credibility. I didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the word of God. I do now, but I was a skeptic then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew, just as you can investigate any other ancient writings, whether they're by Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius, you can take these same investigative techniques and apply them to the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? So in other words, I, I, I didn't just open the Bible that says Jesus was resurrected, end of story. I wanted to dig beneath that. How do I know it really happened? So I want to summarize the evidence by using four words that begin with the letter E. That way it's easy to remember. Easter's coming up soon. Um, who knows what kind of conversations you might get into. And this might be a good little framework to remember the evidence, the four E's. The first E stands for the word execution. You have to have a death, right, before you can have a resurrection. And so one thing I learned as I began to investigate the execution of Jesus is that there is virtually no dispute among scholars in the field. And I'm not just saying Christian scholars. I'm talking about the wide range of scholarship. There is virtual unanimity over the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Why? Because when we study ancient history, we're lucky if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact. And yet, for the execution of Jesus, we not only have multiple early first century accounts of this in the documents that make up the New Testament, we've got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his execution. We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Tacitus, another early historian. Meribar Serapion, Lucian. E even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. And this is so well established of an historical fact, you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you somehow claim, no, 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 Jesus wasn't executed. In fact, we could go to an atheist New Testament scholar, like Gerd Ludemann, formerly of Vanderbilt University. And this is what he says, quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you studied ancient history, but there are very few facts of ancient history that a skeptical, critical, atheist historian like a Gary Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of them is the execution of Jesus. The first E stands for execution. Jesus was dead. By the way, um, no less of a journal than the Journal of the American Medical Association, a peer-reviewed scientific journal, uh, carried an analysis of the medical and historical data concerning the execution of Jesus and came to the conclusion that based on our best understanding of the medical and historical data, Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. The first E is execution. Jesus was dead. The second E is the most fascinating to me. It stands for the word early. We have early reports, early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that go virtually back to the cross itself. Why is that important? Because I used to think, like a lot of skeptics, that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend. 
And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, legends developed, mythologies were created, stories were invented. Oh, there was this Jesus. Really? Yeah, lived in the first century. Great guy. Really? Oh, yeah, rose from the dead. Seriously? Oh, yeah. I thought that's where that came from. But what I learned, I think, decimates the claim that the resurrection is merely a legend. Follow me on this. I think this is fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed, a statement of conviction of the earliest Christians. In other words, the the first Christians right there in the first century would rally around this creed based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared. Now, what's important about this early report about the resurrection is how quickly it developed in the ancient world. Remember, we said it takes legend, time for legend to develop. Well, this creed, we can date back pretty easily how early it is. Why? Because the Apostle Paul preserves it for us in a letter that he wrote. Right there, about 22 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. We know it as 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, he reports this creed. And he uses the the past tense. He indicates that he had given them this creed on an earlier visit. So let's say 20 years or so, After the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence. And therefore, the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier. Now, we could stop there and say 20 years is really quick historically. When you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch, written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. So here we have 20 years. That's pretty good. But we can go back earlier. Why? Because... Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor, a hater of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. Boom, he has this encounter with with, with the resurrected Christ, and he becomes the apostle Paul. Immediately, he goes into Damascus, and he meets with some apostles. Now, there are scholars who believe this is when he was given this creed that he later gives to the church in Corinth. But others say, no, it was probably three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets for 15 days with two people specifically named in the creed, Peter and James. And the Greek word that Paul uses in describing this meeting uh, suggests that this was not a social call. This was an investigative meeting. They were checking each other out. What do you know? What did you see? What do you know for sure? They're checking each other out. Most scholars will say this is when he was given the creed. But either way, it means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence, and therefore the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier virtually to the cross itself. So the point is there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. This is like a newsflash from ancient history. I mean, historians drool over stuff like this. In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area, James D.G. Dunn, says this. This tradition, by that he means this creed, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a creed, as tradition, within months 
of Jesus' death. Within months. That, that is historical gold. I mean, when you consider that one of the greatest classical historians who ever lived was A.N. Sherwin White of Oxford. He understood the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world. And he said that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got a newsflash goes right back to the beginning. And it's not the only early report we've got. We've got others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, the writings of Paul, all of which date back so early they were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the heirs if they were making this stuff up. So, friends, we have an execution. Jesus was dead. We have reports that he rose from the dead that come so quickly, so early, that you can't just dismiss them by saying they're a legend. But that's not all we have. We have a third E that stands for the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, remember the Jewish council. It's sealed. Matthew tells us it's guarded, and yet it's discovered empty on that first Easter morning. Now, we could talk for hours about all the strands of historical data that establish that the tomb, first of all, that his body was indeed in it, and secondly, that it was discovered empty. But I'm just going to give you one fact, because to me this says it all, and that's this. Even the opponents of Jesus admitted that the tomb of Jesus was empty. How do we know? Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, what the opponents never said was, baloney, go open the tomb, you'll find the body. That's all they had to say because it would have put the onus on the disciples to prove it. But they didn't say that. What, do, what did they say? We know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that for a second. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. See what I mean? It's like if you're a teacher and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> that student is admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but... I can tell you what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. So either explicitly or implicitly, the opponents and the supporters of Jesus were agreeing that the tomb of Jesus was empty. I don't think that's the issue of history. I think the issue of history really is, how did it get empty? And you can go through the usual list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders of the day weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. They didn't have the motive. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the opportunity. I think the best explanation for their proclamation that Jesus had risen, that the tomb was empty, I think the best explanation of that is the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than, what, 515 people, to skeptics and doubters as well as to believers, indoors, outdoors, daytime, nighttime, to groups, to individuals. Um, he, people talked with them. They touched him. They ate with them. 
I mean, think of this. Remember we said earlier, we're lucky in ancient history if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact? Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. And it changed the disciples profoundly. They went from hiding and from fear and from cowering to boldly proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, even though we have seven ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament telling us that they lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of that proclamation. Why were they willing to do that? Because they learned about it in Sunday school? Because somebody told them they saw it on CNN? No, because they were there. They touched them, they talked with them, they ate with them. If all the human beings who've ever existed in history, they knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to suffer and even to die for their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Friends, I spent two years of my life exploring the minutia of the resurrection of Jesus. And it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I thought, you know, a good juror reaches a verdict. I've been stuffing my heads with facts and data and statistics for two years. I had to reach a verdict. And so I, 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 I looked at all the evidence I'd encountered, pro and con, and just analyzed over these two years. And I sat down, and I just, I, I went through it, and I, I studied it, and I, I, I absorbed it, and, I, and, and I, I thought, wait a second. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized at that moment it would have taken more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. I'm just saying, that was my conclusion. So based on the historical data, I concluded that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed it up by returning from the dead. But then, as you saw in that clip, it wasn't enough just to have intellectual assent to this evidence. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. And so I looked at that, and I realized it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I thought, I got the belief part down. I believe it based on the data, but I had to take another step. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. And so I got on my knees, and I admitted a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and I became a child of God. And, you know, Leslie... <laughs> Leslie... Uh, Leslie uh, burst into tears and threw her arms around my neck and said... Uh, 
You hard-hearted son of a Baptist, I've been telling you this for two years, hello. No, she didn't do that. I always wish she'd done that because that would have been hilarious. That, that would have been a great ending if she had done that, but that's not like her. But she did burst into tears. And she said, you know, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I, I met some women at church and I told them about you. And I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is the hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus Christ. And this one woman named Sylvia put her arm around Leslie's shoulder and kind of pulled her over to the side. And she said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what I never knew, that whole two years that I'm on that, this investigative journey, what I never knew at the time was behind the scenes every day, Leslie was on her knees praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I had been adopted as a child of God, and then over time, you know, as I'm baptized, as I became part of a vibrant con congregation, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to pray, as I learned to worship, God began to answer her prayers because my values changed and my character changed and my morality changed. And my worldview, and my philosophy, and my relationships, and my parenting, and my marriage, and my, I mean, all these things began to change over time for the good. And this is where I would always get stuck. Because people would say, well, Lee, tell me your story. How did you come to faith in Jesus? And I'd, I'd say, well, let me tell you. And I, I, I tell this whole story and get to this spot and I wouldn't know what to say. Because what words could I use to help you understand the difference God has made in my life since then? Because you didn't know me back then. So you didn't know me when I was drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. So how, how do I, you see what I'm saying? I was frustrated. How do I explain to you the difference God has made? I was frustrated, but I didn't know what to say. But finally, I came up with one thing. And that's what happened to our little girl, Allison. Think about this for a second. Here's a little kid, five years old. All she knew the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole experience. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. She never studied archaeology, never studied ancient history. She's five years old, but she could observe. She could listen. She could watch. And she did. And, and she watched and listened and observed for, I think it was four or five months. And then finally, one Sunday morning, she went up first to her Sunday school teacher and then up to Leslie. And you know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, my little girl 
received this free gift of God's grace, became a child of God, and now she's... um, Now she's married to a a seminary graduate. Uh, She's a novelist. She's had half a dozen novels published fiction, but they all have woven into them this message of redemption and grace through Jesus Christ. Her and her husband together write children's books about God. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son saw the difference God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister. And he came to faith at a young age too. But he took an academic route. He got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And then after many years of research and study at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his PhD in theology. And now you know what he does? He's a professor at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in Southern California, (laughs) teaching young people about Jesus Christ. In fact, you know where he is at this very minute? He's given a lecture at another church on the other side of the valley right here in Phoenix (laughs) about his new book about Jesus. And God changed his life. And four years ago, his wife gave birth to our first grandson. And he named him after his dad. Friends, God rescued our family. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife. He changed me. And now Leslie and I have been married for 44 years. And, uh, and talk about how, how this ripples down through the generations. I told you about Abby, our little 11-year-old granddaughter, went on her first missions trip to a poverty-stricken town in Texas with her youth group, sleeping on sleeping bags in the basement of a church and then doing ministry to the children in the neighborhoods during the day. And just this last summer, little Abby led her first kindergartner to faith in Jesus Christ. So it ripples down through the generations. God saved our family. He rescued us from a road that I don't even want to imagine how it would have ended up. So that's my story. And that's, you know, what the movie's about. Um, uh, but now you don't have to go because I told you the story. So, <laughs> Sorry, Pure Flicks. <laughs> Out of luck. <laughs> but I just, I want to end with this. I want to end with this. Let's go back to that equation. Believe plus receive equals become. And I'll just say, you know, many of us here today have become. You're, you're a Christian. You're a child of God. You're adopted into the family of God. And if that's you, I want to say, you know, God has given us an opportunity to to talk about this message of hope and grace. And, you know, the movie is an opportunity to do that. Uh, As Greg Laurie said, you know, this is a film you can bring anybody to. There's no cringe factor. There's no cheesiness in it. It's just a great picture that Pure Flix made. And, um, you know, the gospel is in it. So I I hope you'll take a risk, invite someone uh, to come, and, and, and then have a great conversation afterward. Um, people are free to reach their own conclusions and go on their own spiritual journey. But I pray many will be launched on that experience as a result of this film. But let's go back. Some of you may not believe. Some of you may relate more to me when I was an atheist. I mean, maybe a friend brought you here tonight and you're full of doubts and questions and obstacles. 
And what I want to say to you is, friends, if you're sitting here right now and you do not believe that Jesus is the unique son of God who proved it by returning from the dead, I want to say to you, it's okay. It's perfectly fine as long as you do what I did and check it out. Investigate it yourself. Come to your own conclusion, but let it be an informed conclusion. You know, the Old Testament and the New Testament both say if you sincerely seek God, guess what? You're going to find him. So check it out. Uh, If my books are helpful, great. If the movie's helpful, great. If this church is helpful, great. But you owe it to yourself to make this a front burner issue in your life and to reach a verdict when the evidence is in. But I want to end with this. Some of you may believe, but you've never received I mean, you believe the right stuff. What I've said is not controversial to you. You you agree with this. You can recite the Apostles' Creed. You can recite the Lord's Prayer. That's great. But has there been a point in time where you have received Jesus as your forgiver and leader? And why is it God seems distant from you? you? You go to church, you hear people talk about how they have a deep and a rich and a vibrant and a real and a personal relationship with Jesus. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, why is it not like that with me? Why does God seem distant from me? Could it be because you believe the right stuff and that's great? But there's never been that point in time where you have received this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Friends, I'm just asking the question. I mean, if you're not sure, you know, the Bible, one of the first verses I memorized as a new Christian um, says this. These things in Scripture, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. God doesn't want you wondering. He doesn't want you in a state of ambiguity or confusion. You can know that you have eternal life if you believe and you have received. So, I mean, I couldn't live with myself if I came all the way here from Houston and didn't give you an opportunity to take that step if you're ready to do that. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just in your heart, God will hear you. Just in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the son of God. And I confess the obvious, that I am a sinner. I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. And I want to confess that, and I want to turn from that. And in repentance and faith, I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased for me on the cross when you died as my substitute to pay for my sin. Thank you for enduring the torture of the cross so that we could be united in a relationship forever. Help me, Jesus, to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven whenever someone turns from their sin, receives forgiveness through your Son. So we celebrate 
those that have taken that step today. We pray for those that are still on the journey that have questions and doubts and obstacles and objections. We pray by your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to their need for a Savior and the truth of who you are. And Father, for those of us who have been your children, maybe, maybe for a long, long time, we thank you that you have entrusted to us this message of hope and grace that we can spread far and wide. Thank you for this great church that it passionately shines your message of grace all over this great valley. We pray for a blessing on each person here. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you all. So glad you came tonight. Thank you. Yeah.